0: Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is podcast number 17 of Hurricane Season 2019. Luke Doris is off today, so you've just got me here for our last regularly scheduled podcast of the hurricane season. Now, if something funky happens here sometime this month, or actually tropical systems can happen uh, just about any month. But if that happens, then we'll be back. But otherwise, we'll see you ahead of a hurricane season 2020. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Michael Brennan, who's the branch chief of the Hurricane Specialist Unit at the National Hurricane Center. Mike basically runs the group of forecasters that turn out hurricane advisories and does a lot of other stuff. Nobody knows more. About the operations at the Hurricane Center and how advisories are made and what's coming up new than uh, Mike Brennan, and we're going to talk to him here in just a moment. We're recording this on Friday, November 8, 2019. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune in to Local Ten or check the Max Tracker app or the Local Ten weather app for current information. Today's podcast is brought to you by the folks at the Dade County Federal Credit Union where they care about you and your family. Stay safe and worry-free during hurricane season and prepare your home. If you need funds to help you get started, then apply for a DCFCU signature loan today and get up to $20,000 with rates as low as 6.9% at Dade County Federal Credit Union. Well, the tropics are quiet. Uh, wintertime upper-level upper, uh, upper level winds are dominating the tropics, although we still have to keep an eye on the extreme southwestern Caribbean That area is sort of in and out of the hostile uh, upper-level winds, and sometimes things still develop, even though it is here uh, well into November. And before we talk about the recent storms, just a quick update on the 1888 Miami Beach hurricane that is in the record books as a strong Category 3, at least. We've talked about it a number of times, and there's progress on figuring out exactly what happened with that storm. If you listened to the last podcast, you know I received some records from the National Archive that show that it did not hit Miami Beach, that it was farther north and not anywhere near a Category 3. Well, now I have a log from Fowey Rocks and another uh, uh, booklet that came in from August of 1888, the weather records taken at Jupiter. So uh, anyway, I have lots more information now. Now, if you're a boater, you know Fowley Rocks. It's about six and a half miles southeast of Key Biscayne. It's a lighthouse out there. If you go out in your boat and look, you'll see kind of a little wooden house on there. And in 1888, people actually lived out there. And believe it or not, they um, they kept a log, and they were there to keep the light lit, so people didn't run into the ships, didn't run into the reef uh, off of Key Biscayne. So, anyway, we have more information, and we're uh, pinning it down. Uh, I'm, uh, my conclusion is that the storm came ashore north of Fort Lauderdale, south of Delray Beach, as uh, something like a strong tropical storm or a Category One hurricane. But I'm sending the information. Over to the National Hurricane Center, and there's a team uh, related to NOAA and the Hurricane Research Division and the National Hurricane Center, led by Dr. Chris Lancy, who will uh, take a look at this uh, at uh, some point, and and uh, I'm pretty sure they'll revise the official record. So it's all kind of cool, and we'll have more on it. I'll put it on Facebook if if uh, I get the the write up done before they get the final analysis done. Anyway, it's a. It's a cool um, project that I've been undertaking, and, and it's kind of fun to see it come to some fruition. So I'll write it up. And you can also follow me on Twitter, by the way, at uh, BNORCROSSWPLG, and I'll let you know there if there's more on the 1888 hurricane. All right, uh, subtropical storm Rebecca was the last storm, yet another high-latitude storm, adding to the number of storms this hurricane season. Not really much of a threat, uh, but certainly certainly not to the U.S., a little bit of a threat to some of the Azores, but it was weakening as it went through there. So we're at 17 named storms at the top end of NOAA's hurricane season forecast of 10 to 17. So it's been an interesting hurricane season. In that 17, of course, we had two Category 5 hurricanes. Dorian, we all know about, and it was Lorenzo, a record-setting storm on the other side of the Atlantic. And then there were a bunch of these messy kind of tropical systems that didn't last for a very long time. And uh, that makes the counting of named storms in a hurricane season really not a good indicator of what the season uh, was like, which, of course, forecasters know uh, very well. In October last month, it was a weird uh, situation. Again, these weird storms continued since our last podcast, Tropical Storm Olga, formed in the Gulf. And wreaked havoc in, in southern Louisiana. Actually, surprising windstorm there. A super t- tiny hurricane Pablo formed in the northeast Atlantic, uh, more northeast than any other hurricane in the history books. Uh, one storm formed farther north, but nothing in that northeastern part of the Atlantic it was weird. And uh, before that, of course, there was Nestor, it was another annoying storm in the Gulf, in this kind of never-never land between tropical and subtropical, and uh, there are subjective questions that have to be answered uh, when these things get named. So uh, that brings us to Dr. Michael Brennan, the branch chief in charge of the hurricane specialists at the National uh, Hurricane Center. Mike, uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Brian. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Uh, Thanks for being here. And so let's go a little out of order. I think it'll make more sense. First of all, the one we ended with, subtropical storm Rebecca, there was a debate whether to call it or was there a debate whether to call it a tropical storm or was that one one of these that was firmly in the subtropical storm bucket?
1: Yeah, that one seemed to be a a little more clearly subtropical. It never had a lot of uh, what we really Think of in terms of really deep convection near the center. So uh, you know, as you mentioned, there's sort of this continuum. And but Rebecca was sort of more in, clearly in the subtropical side of the line than than the tropical side. Uh, you know, it sort of had this kind of uh, showery, not really a lot of deep thunderstorms near the center that you would see in a more tropical type system.
0: Yeah, although it was a little confusing from the satellite because when you would first glance at it on the satellite, it had. Uh, showers wrapping around the center, and yep. often we don't see that in subtropical storms, right? So it's, it was confusing at first glance.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, again, it's, sometimes it's, it's sort of a, again, it's it's a subjective call. The subtropical definition is actually pretty pretty subjective, and uh, yeah, there, there's definitely some wiggle room there, and you know, we see storms sort of cross over going both ways that we've seen this year, actually.
0: Exactly. So, all right, let's go back one to Pablo. It's sort of Odd uh, breed of storm that we've seen lately too far north and too cold water. What, do we, have we seen more of them lately or is it, I don't know, is it just sort of uh, uh, the bias of something recent that uh, makes me think that? Or do we pay more attention to them now because we can measure them better?
1: I think it's we see we're better able to, to to detect and measure them. When there was actually a storm that was somewhat similar to Pablo, uh, didn't become a hurricane though. Back in 2009, called Tropical Storm Grace, that formed almost in the exact same location. Never got quite as strong, and that's the other challenge with those storms that form so far north and they're so small. Is uh, you know we have our satellite intensity estimates, but we're, you're, there's a lot more uncertainty as to how strong those storms actually are because of the yeah, the the Dvorak technique, which we use to to measure uh, intensity by satellite or estimate intensity by satellite, not always great for little tiny systems. And then also up that far north, the uh, the boundary layer, uh, the ocean temperatures are not terribly warm, so you don't know how much mixing you're going to get of the winds down to the surface. But it definitely ended up with a, a very hurricane-like appearance in satellite imagery, uh, at least for a time. And that's why we ended up putting it into the hurricane category.
0: Yeah, all those things we studied in thermodynamics uh, don't exactly work. <laughs> Yeah, but it's
1: really cold aloft up there in <laughs> yes, the northern exactly. latitudes. You can get uh, get deep. Thunderstorm activity over waters that would normally be way too cold to support a the sort of a traditional hurricane in the deep tropics or even up into the subtropics.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was it was an impressive looking little storm, uh, especially when you zoomed in on it. If you didn't zoom yeah, in it on it, you small. could miss it. Yes, it was very very Well, that small.
1: That, that goes to your issue you where know, you mentioned the better detection. If you had, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you might not have had the resolution of the satellite imagery to be able to see an eye in a storm that small that we can detect more easily now with today's satellites. Yeah,
0: with the the high-resolution satellites, yeah. All right, so let's go back a couple more. There was Nestor. Now, you guys were tracking this tropical disturbance in the Caribbean. We seem to have a whole series of these things this year that moved across the Yucatan into the southern Gulf of Mexico, and then it got pulled north by a dip in the jet stream, and meantime, a front was bearing down from Texas. It it was spinning in some kind of uh, elongated kind of way. Then suddenly it organized into yeah. what was called Tropical Storm Nestor, which I, I got to admit, that was really a surprise to me. So how subjective was that call? And and, you know, is that going to get reanalyzed, do you think? Or, or, you know, what was going on with uh, I mean, those kind of messy storms are always difficult for everybody concerned.
1: Yeah, you know, the Gulf of Mexico has thrown a lot of curveballs at us this year. You think going all the way back to Barry, which was a hurricane that right, a originated yes. Over, yes. over over North America over land, but right. then never really looked like a classical hurricane. It sort of had this lopsided structure and sort of a broader center than you'd expect to see in a tropical cyclone. And then we've had Nestor, and as you mentioned, Olga. So we've sort of had. Every pathway to Genesis and every sort of flavor of storms moving across the spectrum of cyclones that you could almost think of this year. Um, Nestor was an interesting case. It there it, it had this very elongated, uh, not really even what you could call a center at first, so that it didn't come anywhere close to meeting our definition of what would you know we we'd consider a well-defined center for a tropical cyclone. But then, I guess it was on uh, October 18th that the system got better organized. And uh, we actually had a lot of aircraft data. I was actually working that day, so I remember this pretty well. We had aircraft and ship and buoy data that showed that the center became much better organized. And then it sort of took on this sheer tropical cyclone appearance. It was pretty lopsided. There was upper-level strong upper-level westerly winds from that trough moving across the Gulf of Mexico, and then then it sort of ended up transitioning to a sort of a post-tropical or almost more of a subtropical and then post-tropical structure as it approached the northern Gulf Coast. But Nestor was interesting because it was really big. So it had this large area of wind and storm surge, and these big storms in the Gulf of Mexico, even if they're not very strong from a peak wind perspective, move a lot of water around, especially when you get into like the Big Bend area of Florida, this Gulf Coast. So you can have 40 or 50 knots and can cause a lot of uh, a lot of storm surge there, a lot of tornadoes, a lot of rain bands. So it was kind of a big sloppy system, uh, and you know we ended up carrying that as a tropical cyclone all the way up through landfall. But we'll certainly take another look at the details of the evolution as we go through the post-analysis. Yeah, it was
0: almost in transition from this uh, disorganized thing. Uh, it was almost a continuous transition seemed like you know looking at it from a distance here, and you guys are analyzing the the uh, minute details uh, and and through that transition period, you can certainly imagine out ahead of the front when you uh, out and out ahead of that dip in the jet stream, the trough, you end up with kind of uh, favorable conditions for something tropical to develop at least briefly until yep. the trough kind of moved on through so. I mean yes you can intuitively imagine how it might have happened but it wasn't obvious on the satellite <laughs> uh, looking at it uh, looking at it here
1: yeah, yeah, definitely didn't have that sort of, through its whole life cycle, never looked classical, again, like a classical tropical cyclone. But, um, you know, we, we, we have a lot of different ways we can try to cover the evolution of these sort of complex systems now with, with potential tropical cyclones where we can issue tropical storm watches and warnings for the coast, even if we you know, if the system's not a tropical cyclone yet, but we expect it to become one. And then we can also hang on to them after they've become post-tropical or lost their tropical characteristics to try to handle the hazards the best we can. But, you know, every storm presents sort of a different situation. How long is it going to have tropical characteristics or whatever the magnitude and the coverage of the impacts going to be? So it's, uh, you know, not every storm is going to get handled the same way because, you know, they they don't all have the same set of hazards and the same evolution.
0: Yeah. So, all right. That brings us to Olga. Now, for Nestor, you had the tropical storm warnings, the storm surge warnings for the northern Gulf Coast. In fact, yep. it was all the way around to Tampa Bay because that was such a big system, as you said, moving a lot of water. But not on Olga, even though the sort of evolution cycle of it was similar. There were differences in the way the front was oriented and, and uh, so forth. But what was the, the thinking there about not going with the tropical uh, kind of alerts for the coastline with Olga?
1: Yeah, Olga was a trickier system because it only looked like it was going to be tropical for a very short period of time. And we weren't really confident in whether it was going to uh, uh, sort of achieve tropical cyclone characteristics. Uh, so we didn't want to put stuff up on the front end saying, oh, it's going to, be, you know, we're going to go ahead and issue tropical storm watches and warnings. Uh, on the front end, because our confidence wasn't very high. And then once it became a tropical cyclone, the front was rapidly approaching it and it would only maintain tropical cyclone status for about 12, maybe 18 hours. And the other thing that we were thinking was that because there was actually the larger scale wind event was associated with the front, so it would have been hard to differentiate between the the winds with the front and the winds with Olga itself and how to divide the watches and warnings from tropical to non-tropical would have been tricky. Now, obviously, Olga ended up strengthening and coming in as a stronger system than we initially anticipated, so the forecast itself just wasn't very good and it ended up end up being an impactful system especially because it went uh it affected the new orleans metropolitan area in an overnight period knocked out power so it ended up having this sort of uh, remnant you know sort of small scale warm core that was still attached to the front after the front had merged with it that came on inland that early that saturday morning so you know after an event like that we'll go back and we'll talk to the folks in Louisiana at the local forecast office and talk to their media and emergency management partners and try to get feedback on how how That was handled, and if you know, if they it might have been better handled a different way, it's always easy in hindsight. It's like, oh, well, if the, you know, the forecast had been perfect and we would have anticipated that, we might have done things a different way. But when you're trying to make the decisions in real time, you have to sort of go with what you think the evolution is going to be,
0: yeah. And when you have uh systems that don't come along very often, sometimes that strains the system. I think I, I got to tell you though, in a number of times this year, because we had these quasi-tropical, almost subtropical, partially tropical systems in the the Gulf, we saw a lot of situations, seemed like more than normal, where we talked about, okay, tropical storm force winds or tropical storm warnings, they're going to become gale warnings. And and I got to tell you, that makes my head explode because yeah. <laughs> they they're exactly the same thing on the low end anyway right yeah. uh and and it it feels like a distinction without a difference and so i just does that i mean i know that that you guys got to be thinking exactly the same thing that it's a it's a challenging problem making the watches and warnings and the and the sway these things are issued and and so forth match mother nature mother nature's uh, yeah. continuum right but but don't, do you feel like, as I do, that something has to happen there so we don't end up in that uh, tropical storm warning becoming a gale warning kind of problem?
1: Yeah, that's what. Well, that's what we we try to avoid switching warning types during events. So that's that's sort of the the framework that I think about is when we think about a nester. And we have an event that we think is going to be a tropical cyclone for a period of time. There's going to be uh, impacts over a very large area where we don't expect the transition to occur until right when it gets to the coast. So with that, for a storm like that, we went ahead and just put up tropical cyclone watches and warnings and carried those all the way through the storm making landfall along the Gulf Coast, and then along the East Coast, it was clearly going to be an extra tropical cyclone when it reached the Carolinas, so there was a very clear way to divide that up, and we talked about that internally here at the Hurricane Center and with the Weather Service offices, so uh, to, to sort of divide it up, we were going to handle the hazards along the Gulf Coast with tropical products and the hazards along the East Coast with, with gales and sort of the more normal uh, products that, that, that you have when you don't have a tropical cyclone so yeah the whole goal is to avoid switching so that's why we have the potential tropical cyclones so in the past if we had a system that wasn't say a tropical depression or tropical storm we couldn't issue tropical storm right. watches or warnings right. So would have to be something else up and then we have to switch in the middle of the event so we're trying to, to maintain the continuity as best we can now, you know if you, if the forecast doesn't work out great then you can sort of have a problem where you end up either you know having something out that doesn't really play out or not covering something that you wish you had in the, in, in hindsight um, but we're trying to do the best we can in terms of maintaining that continuity. And, and uh, you know, we're still feeling our way through to say the potential tropical cyclones have really only been around for three seasons now, but we've used them almost 18 or 20 times. So from a ability to get the messaging and the products and the watches and warnings out, I think they've been really effective uh, overall.
0: Yeah, I know. I agree. By the way, I was up at uh, FSU uh, weekend before last, uh, talking with the meteorology students, a group of us go up there every day, and on behalf of the students there, they want to know if you're going to change the name of potential and post, potential tropical cyclones and post tropical cyclones in the meteorology school, because they find that unaffected uh, among students. Uh, is there is there any talk about, you know, rethinking those names? I think everybody agrees with the concept, but uh, every time they come along, uh, there's, there is there is consternation, let me put it that way. Yeah, you
1: know, there's, there's probably not a perfect way to do it. We, we've tried to give the potential tropical cyclone a couple of years for people to get accustomed to. I think if we'd done anything new, it would have been a little challenging. So, you know, we're, we're open to feedback on that. The question is sort of it, there's. There's some other options. None of them are that appealing because they might imply something that's not really there about the storm. You know, you can have a potential tropical cyclone could be so many different things. It could be a system that's already a cyclone, like an extra tropical right. that's transitioning. It could be a tropical wave. It could be one of these elongated disturbances like a nester. So, you are again, you're, you don't want to pick a name that's so specific that you end up boxing yourself into what you can call it. So, but yeah, you know, we we listen to feedback, and you know, the post the post tropical cyclone terminology we actually used we actually took that from our friends at Environment Canada because that's what they were using for systems that were no longer hurricanes that were affecting Atlantic Canada many years ago. So that was something we we borrowed from them when we first first took that out. So or first started uh, using that terminology. But we're always looking to, to try and do things better and you know we're trying to do more of a, a, a better job of working with social science community and other folks who know more about communication and how people uh, you know take and understand and digest information so you know we'll we'll continue to look at that going forward
0: yeah on the uh, potential and post tropical cyclones uh, the potential tropical cyclone only has one problematic word and that's cyclone because most people yeah. don't know what that means right but post tropical cyclones in my mind has two problematic words one is post because post yeah. kind of means over you know and I know it doesn't yeah. i know post tropical cyclone in no way means uh, over but but yeah. it has that sense of overness right and uh, anyway so th- th- to me that's a an interesting communications challenge and perhaps the solution is to move past the idea of describing meteorologically what the system is and said Look at ways of describing the threat that it is going to cause, and you know, think about it a different way, or, or some other yeah. way. Anyway, we'll will yeah, s- and stay that's with something
1: that. we've really tried to do, you know, we, we've obviously had to deal with that with something like a Nestor or an Olga or some of these storms that are sort of transitioning through their life cycle, and we, you know, try to keep the focus on the hazards. We obviously don't change the types of watches and warnings that are in effect. So we're we're trying to message more and more of that and get away from the details of the meteorology, but. You know, in, in some cases, you have to call things what they are, too. So there's sort of a scientific aspect to it. And certainly for the post analysis record, you have to sort right. of figure out right. how to handle
0: that. So. Exactly. All right, let's, let's go back to the big one uh, Dorian. Looking back yeah. at Dorian and, you know, everything that happened with that, what's your takeaway from, from that event?
1: Well, I think Dorian was such a challenging storm in so many ways, all the way from forecasting its genesis, which wasn't really anticipated very well by some of the models. Uh, yeah. And uh, and then uh, even the models that did show it forming east of the Lesser Antilles for several cycles, a lot of the global models were showing it Moving into the Caribbean and then dissipating and staying very far to the south, so there wasn't a lot of signal that it was going to even go on to become much of a, a significant tropical cyclone, even maybe something more than a depression or a sort of a very low-end tropical storm.
0: And it ended up farther it, east, right? So the right. fact that it, the fact that they didn't have the track right might have yep. had something to do with the fact that they didn't have the intensity, right? It was too weak, yeah. That yeah.
1: Is, and then when you run into those situations where the model representation of the storm is off in terms of the intensity, and especially the depth of the system, that's when you can run into these big track errors that can then play a role in the intensity errors, because then downstream, you know, Dorian moved over St. Lucia, and you had this reformation of the center almost jumped and dissipated and reformed, mm-hmm. and there was some shear with the system, so there was a sort of discontinuity in the track, and before Dorian moved over St. Lucia, all the model guidance had it moving towards Puerto Rico or uh, eastern Hispaniola, and that obviously had impacts on what we were forecasting in terms of the intensity. In the longer term, we were expecting land interaction, uh, not sure how much there would be, or but, but certainly something that would suppress the intensity until it got north of uh, the greater Antilles into the vicinity of the area east of the Bahamas. And then you had Dorian reform, and you can look at the track model guidance. Even within 12 hours, all the model guidance was off by quite a bit.
0: Yeah, it kind of uh, jumped on one, north, right? It when jumped
1: it went... it sort of a reform, right? Yes. And then went, basically you went from a situation where we didn't have any watches and warnings out for the Virgin Islands the day before, and then they ended up having a hurricane move over mm-hmm. them. So that's obviously not ideal from a preparation and, and a warning standpoint. And then because the storm moved east to Puerto Rico, basically had no land interaction it was able to strengthen all the way until it got into the Southwest Atlantic, and then obviously Dorian went on to become what it became in terms of a Category 5 storm that approached the Bahamas. But those were some of the you know, most challenging intensity forecasts because they're tied to the track, which is tied to the structure. So it all sort of uh, you know sort of merged together in a very complicated forecast scenario. And then that doesn't even get us to the point where the steering currents collapsed, and we had the stall and the, the landfall and the you know, Great Abaco, and then the threat to Florida and the southeastern U.S.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think people generally appreciate how interrelated the intensity and the track are. Uh, so uh, the uh, going both ways, right? If the storm goes yep. a different place, then the intensity uh, forecast has a good chance of being uh, somewhat different. And if the intensity is way off, that can affect uh, the track, as we all know. Generally, weaker storms generally go farther west in the heart yep. of the hurricane season, for example.
1: Yeah, and especially the you know when you have land involved, like islands, topography. If you don't get the track right, then that's going to have really big implications on the intensity. And, uh, you know, I remember Irma making one of the four <laughs> – Yeah, Irma's the exact same thing. You know, yeah. It scraped the north coast of Cuba. That was a yeah. 10 miles farther offshore. You would have had a very different storm approaching the Florida Keys, for
0: example. Exactly. Well, so here we had another super strong storm, and the question was, how strong was it? Now, we talked to Dr. Uh, Jack Bevan earlier this season about that excellent uh, Hurricane Michael report he wrote. And the lingering questions about the measurements from the instrument on the Hurricane Hunters that estimates the speed of the wind at the ocean surface by looking at the sea foam, the SFMR. Yep. And, and the research that's underway to figure out what's happening at the very high end of the uh, wind speeds, as we saw in Michael, we saw in Irma. Did did this come into play in Dorian as well, another, you know, 185-mile-an-hour uh, hurricane? Did, did we have those sort of anomalous SFMR readings that we're not still not totally sure about yet uh, in that sort? Yeah,
1: of? yeah, we saw the same sort of behavior once Dorian got up into the Category 4 and 5 range. We saw that similar scenario that we've seen in previous storms where the SFMR winds ended up much higher than the flight-level winds. And you know obviously even higher than the flight level winds would suggest the surface wind should be yeah. now Dorian for certain for sure those flight level winds were very high. We had you know central pressure readings of around nine hundred and ten millibars. It was obviously a you know very extreme storm, but in terms of just how strong to make it, we're just starting to work on the post analysis for Dorian now, and uh, you know those are still open questions about the relationships that we use to derive the sfMR winds at those very high high-end wind speeds, a Category 4 or 5 range. So we're going to have to sort through that. And we have a lot of aircraft data, drop on, pressure readings, flight-level winds, and all that to look through. And that's that's sort of going on now as we go through the post-analysis for that storm.
0: So based on the research that was done by at Rappaport, James Franklin, other other folks, uh, the idea is now we look at the flight-level winds from nominally 10,000 feet and take uh, – uh, 90% of that, and that is a good estimate of the surface winds. Are you thinking that that, that will change here as we look at these super-strong storms, or are we seeing some sort of different vertical profile for these storms?
1: Yeah, that's, that's something that we have some research going on into, and we also, you know, a lot of that was determined by the, the drops-on measurements and how the drops-on winds change with height as you go down from flight level down to the surface. And so... The last few years, with so many strong storms, we have a lot more drops on data that we can go back and look at and try to recalibrate some of those relationships, not just the flight-level winds, but then also the actual calibration of the SSMR instrument itself. You know, what should it be doing right. uh, in those type of wind regimes? You know, when the, those, those relationships were first sort of put together – we didn't have a lot of data at those very high-end winds, and so we've gotten a lot more now. So there's an active research project that's starting to look at that and try to improve and re re-examine those relationships going forward. So, you know, hopefully in a couple of years we'll have a better idea. And, and, and we've been very upfront about that in our post-analysis of storms like Irma or Jose or Michael, that, you know, we may have to go back and make some changes to the best track intensities of those storms once we find out what those relationships really should be, if we get a better understanding, either up or down, of what those true intensities really were. But, you know, it's worth pointing out that, you know, our average uncertainty in the intensity of a major hurricane is plus or minus about 10%. So if you're talking about something that's 180 miles an hour, you could be 15 miles an hour up or down is, you know, well within the error bars there. Uh, for just the amount of uncertainty there is at that at that 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 uh, strength of the storm,
0: yeah, so just for folks that uh, just to be sure we define the words the drop on uh, yeah. is the instrument package that gets thrown out of the hurricane out of the aircraft at about ten thousand feet and it falls down through the hurricane and it measures the atmosphere all the way down uh, to the surface or to near the surface, so that gives us a a way of knowing what the hurricane is doing in those intermediate levels. And the idea of coming up with some sort of profile of that in these super strong hurricanes would be very valuable. And as a matter of fact, that could actually allow us to go back and even rethink uh, past storms, very strong storms that we do have aircraft data for, but we don't have SFMR for Hurricane Andrew, for example, or uh, maybe even going back before that, back to Allen and these other very, very strong storms that were – Measured, and we thought we knew what was going on at the surface, but maybe we'll learn more.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. And the reanalysis of Andrew that was done to make it a category five was again based on these relationships that were discovered after Andrew occurred. And yes, yeah, so right. as you mentioned, the, the, this whole Atlantic reanalysis effort is underway. They're, you were talking about the 1888 storm. They're, they're sort of working their way through the 1960s now. Yes, I'm, more I'm data to, with bated breath here,
0: waiting on on Clio and uh, yes. and Isbel and uh, Betsy. For sure.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. As, as we get farther along in the time, there's more and more data to start looking at. So the process itself becomes more complicated than it was, you know, say, in the 1910s or 1920s, and you had ship data and some limited surface observations. Now we're getting into the era where there's satellite imagery to look at and start to get some ideas about what did that mean compared to what was uh, the interpretation of it at the time.
0: Yeah, exactly. All right, so what else stood out to you in hurricane season 2019, that we can learn, um, or maybe even will affect our thinking about uh, storms in the future.
1: Well, again, you know, it was a it was a, a complicated season. There were a lot of uh, uh, you know, storms that, as you mentioned, a lot of short-lived storms that sort of barely got over the line as far as being a tropical depression or tropical storm. We had a lot of weak, short-lived systems. We had. Again, just about every pathway to genesis you can think of, from subtropical to MCSs over the land to uh, things like Rebecca and Pablo. Uh, but again, you know we've seen uh, significant impacts from something like an Imelda, which formed right along the coast of Texas and brought another sort of catastrophic flooding event to portions right. of southeast Texas, again, something that was barely a tropical storm. Uh, not much in the way of wind impacts, but it, you know it's almost always the water that uh, that becomes the big story in these events. And even systems that don't ever quite become a tropical cyclone can still bring uh, significant wind or significant rain impacts and flooding. So, you know, I think you know, and again, the Dorian, the event we had there, is always a reminder of you know if you look at the track forecast errors for Dorian, they were actually below-average errors, but, you know, when you're close to a, you have a system that's paralleling the coast, an error of 100 or 150 miles makes a huge difference in what the impacts can be. And we had some, you know, forecasts out at longer ranges that had very small errors, but if, when you're talking about whether the storm's going to be east of the Florida Peninsula or over the Florida Peninsula, even a 50-mile error, say, four or five days out, would be a huge uh, difference in what the impacts are. So we have to again, remind people that they have to take uh, actions based on the risk profile that the storm presents and and sort of watch that forecast and that risk change with time.
0: Yeah, the preliminary numbers I saw indicated that actually 2019, uh, the forecasts were very good in terms of average errors. It was uh, another record year, was it not? Do you have the final numbers?
1: Yeah, we well, have preliminary numbers. These actually don't include some of the most recent storms, and obviously the best tracks are still being worked on. But yeah, we looks like we set some records at at least a few forecast times for tracking the Atlantic. The intensity, we actually set some records for intensity in the short range, but uh, the longer range, the errors were quite high. Most of those were due to actually due to, to Dorian itself. We had some
0: yeah, that's errors, a couple of errors.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. that did affect the average errors because you know with Dorian was such a long lived storm, we had a lot of big errors. For those forecasts when the storm got near the Bahamas and it got to its peak intensity, that was a time when we were thinking the storm would have moved over Hispaniola earlier or near Puerto Rico and we're forecasting a much weaker storm. We had some individual forecast errors at day five that were, you know, 90 or 100 knots even uh, right at the peak. So that's obviously going to affect the average intensity errors for the season. But if you look at the rest of the season without Dorian included, the errors are sort of more typical to what you see. Uh, you know, and the rapid intensification still remains a, a big challenge. We saw that with something like a Lorenzo that, again, something we hadn't really seen a storm that strong that far east before. Mm-hmm. But getting up to Category 5 strengths again, not a lot of uh, guidance that, that really helped us with that.
0: Yeah, it just a lot of strange storms it seemed like this year. You know, you were talking yeah. about Imelda there in Texas and how these uh, systems can develop right near the coast and cause a lot of damage even though they're not very strong and even though we didn't have one this year one of the other I think the key lessons that's finally bubbled up uh, as a result of Michael and it's taken some time after Michael to really uh, become uh, a thought in the front of our minds is looking at these Category 5 hurricanes and the short window of time that we have to react uh, to them, which includes yes. 1935 and uh, Andrew and Camille yep. and Michael, right? They were all quick developers uh, compared to the Dorians and, and uh, Irma's and, and Irmas, yep. uh, other sorts of hurricanes that come from the Atlantic. So it's, it's kind of on both ends. It's not just the quick developers that are weak and damaging. Quick developers can be also be strong and catastrophic.
1: Yeah, unfortunately for you know for for those of us here in Florida where you live in an area where you can actually have a rapidly intensifying and developing system that can form in a couple of days and become a major hurricane and make landfall all within a 2 or 3 day time period. So that's something that's particularly uh you know a challenge uh, this far south in the basin. Uh, yeah, if you look back at the history of most of those Category 5 storms that hit the United States, they didn't even exist five days before landfall, or they might have been very, very weak systems. So, yeah, not everything's going to be the Irma that you have 10 days to follow all the way across the Atlantic. And, uh, you yeah, for those strongest landfalls, those are actually the exception rather than the rule.
0: Yeah, so that's what I talk about a lot when I give a talk and, uh, you know, talk about Andrew, and I try and translate that to the modern time and try and get people past the idea that you would not know five days out that it was coming. <laughs> you just wouldn't. That's when the right. cone is going to be, yep. you know, normally aimed at you five days out, right? Uh, or five or six days out, it's aimed at you. But that yep. would not happen uh, with anywhere near the precision that we kind of anticipate if Andrew were to happen again, which which gets us to the idea of a seven-day Going, that's been thrown around for many years. So where does that stand? I know you guys have been doing it internally.
1: Yeah, we've been doing in-house six- and seven-day forecasts for most of the last four or five years. And, um, you know, we haven't gotten all the, the final numbers for this year, but it looks like in an average sense, the errors themselves are actually pretty good. But we have these big outliers at day six and seven where you can have track errors that might be five or 600 miles that pop up sometimes. And those are a real challenge in terms of, If those forecasts were public, how would you be able to message such a big forecast error that would then require such big changes to the forecast as you tried to correct from it? So I think back to Florence from last year, there were some six and seven day forecasts we made when the storm was still out in the eastern Atlantic that had the storm recurving east of Bermuda. Uh, all the models showed that, and then there was this gradual step back to the left. The five day forecast errors really never got as big because they weren't at that point where you were taking the storm too far northward. But if those six and seven day forecasts had been public, people might have written off Florence as, oh, it's going to recurve, it's never going to be a problem. And then how do you get their attention back again? Uh, that's that's sort of uh, one thing we struggle with and the other thing is how do you just how do you present a six- and seven-day forecast You, you I don't think you really necessarily want to put a dot on the map given the uncertainty at those time ranges and then how do you define the risk area we might not want to use something that's just based on the error cone. we might want to try to come up with something that's more hazard based so we're We're starting to think about how we would present that, but we don't have any firm timetables for going public with the six- and seven-day yet. Yeah,
0: so the challenge would be um, if uh, storms, let's say, you know, we're here in Miami, and uh, the the six or seven day forecast was taken to Jacksonville. Well, that feels like a different planet, but it's right. only 350 miles away. You know, oh, so, yeah. so yeah. that'd be way within the error uh, yeah. at six or seven days. So, uh, right. it, yeah, it's inc- incongruous from a mental uh, perception standpoint and a communication standpoint. It's uh, it's really tricky. All right, yeah. and, and so now we have the forecast cone with really kind of the opposite issue. Right. Most of the time in any kind of well-developed storm, the dangerous winds are way outside the cone. They reach yep. well outside the cone, even if the forecast is perfect. And uh, because the width of the cone has shrunk over the years, because it's based on how good the forecasts are. And the forecasts have gotten better and better. And as uh, as you said, they've even gotten better this year. So now I know that there's uh, work underway. Robbie Berg is uh, working a lot on on this at the Hurricane Center. The Think about a new cone or new ways to communicate the track and the threat. Is, is there a timetable on that, or, or what are the steps in that process?
1: Well, we have some, a lot of different social science projects that are just sort of getting started. that The National Weather Service is funding to look at this. specifically one of them looking at the cone pro, cone graphic. Others are taking a more sort of holistic look at the Weather Service's tropical product suite or, or even how people interpret uh forecast information that changes with time so we're hoping and they're talking to different you know the general public emergency managers different sectors of the economy that use the products and we're hoping that we'll get some feedback from those social science projects that will give us at least some guidance uh about how to sort of make changes understand how people are using the information now uh, to make decisions and try to design you know, things that might be uh, better tools or better products going forward. So it's not something we're going to be implementing next year, but we're hoping by next year to have some of these results and then start thinking and planning ahead for the future about uh, what what should our products look like, what should we try to depict, and, and what's going to be the most useful. Because there's often this pull, push and pull between you know, people like simple graphics that don't have too much information on them, but then on the other hand, if how can you Provide enough information for people to make decisions on it without overwhelming them with too much information. So, so that's always one of the the the, the challenges there as to how much is the right sort of sweet spot between what you can provide.
0: Yeah, hurricanes are very complicated things, and preparing for right. them is tremendously complicated. But yet, most people want to get the information on their phone. So, right. uh, the, yeah, exactly. Those two things <laughs> are you, are are not going in the same direction. <laughs> in terms, right. Of and how do you just, how you, know, you have you multiple
1: order. hazards, and mm-hmm. you want how do you compress that all into something that somebody can look at on a screen that's you know four inches across? Is uh, is is definitely a challenge.
0: Yeah. Well, you talk about. Uh, I mean, the cone is a way to communicate uncertainty, obviously. And a new thing has come along just in the last year at the European Center ensembles have uh come out so the ensembles are the the spaghetti plots that show kind of the range of possibilities they monkey with the atmospherics and the and the numbers related to the storm and plug it in the model and run it and you end up with this fan looking thing and the european mm-hmm. ensembles have 51 members the GFS has uh, 21, right, as I recall. So in any case, now that we have the European uh, ensembles, we can kind of see in the public the, a, a bigger variety of these graphics that show uncertainty. You know, where it used to be we could only see uh, publicly, we could only see the European. Is there good research that says that the broader the fan of ensemble members, the uh, more uncertain the forecast? I mean, is that a direct correlation or is that just a subjective kind of sense of, of the situation?
1: I, there, there definitely is a relationship between the uncertainty and the, the the potential error, for especially for ensemble systems that are that are what we call well calibrated, or if they're actually capturing the uncertainty. Because you could have an ensemble that's sort of all over the place in a situation when the forecast uncertainty is not so not so large, and that that doesn't really help you. Or you can have vice versa. So. Uh, you want You have to look at the performance of an ensemble over a period of time and, and sort of try to capture that uh, relationship. And one of the challenges is the ensembles are changing every year. You know, they're always upgrading them. Uh, the GFS ensemble is supposed to get a big upgrade next year, uh, or next year or 21, I don't remember. But, uh, you know, so we're hoping that we're going to get more dynamical ensemble information and, and, again, eventually start to use that information in some of our products, which, the the products that we uh, you know, use to capture forecast uncertainty are based largely on the NHC forecast error history, not on what's going on in real time. So, uh, For like instance, making incorporate
0: the, the cone dynamically wide, not always the right. same width for the whole hurricane season, for example.
1: Exactly, so that you could capture some of that situational forecast uncertainty, because sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. And, uh, you know, but then the question is, is, do you take the cone and make it something that's, you know, more hazard-based? The cone doesn't tell you anything about the hazards now. It just tells you where the center of the storm might go. And, you know, we've been trying to come out with products that are more hazard-based because, again, it's hard to capture all the hazards in one particular graphic. So we're trying to focus on the wind and the storm surge and the flooding rainfall and all that separately. And then that's, uh, But, again, then you've got so much for people to look at. How do they make sense of it
0: all? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we tend to think about ensembles as being some kind of fan that shows some kind of uncertainty going forward. But then you have those situations where you have these bifurcated tracks, right, where about half the ensembles go to the right and about half go to the left and not so many go in the middle. And and that kind of uh, throws a monkey wrench into the idea of using the ensembles to to uh, turn it into some kind of cone directly.
1: Yeah, one one of the challenges we see when we look at the various ensemble systems you mentioned the GFS and the European there's also the UK Met has one they tend to sort of cluster together, so you, if you if you plot them all together you might get a sense of the true uncertainty but sometimes the if you just say looked at one modeling system's ensembles will sort of tend to cluster around each other they don't spread out quite enough so so yeah there's still challenges and one of the challenges with the ensembles too is for weaker systems. The models and the ensembles, which are typically run at less resolution than the the deterministic models are, don't really capture the systems very well. They might not hang on to them. So if you had something like a Dorian, that initially is weak, the ensembles might not have any representation of it at all. So you have to figure out how you would handle those sort of low-end, weak systems when there's not enough uh, real you know, dynamical model information to catch on to them with.
0: Yeah, it, it is. It's complicated. Although the ensembles of today have a higher resolution than the the models, just the operational models did not oh, that sure. long ago. It's, uh, exactly. It's, uh, the technology is amazing. All right, talking about models. The other kind of, in fact, the way that that you guys generally make a forecast, you look at these consensus models that uh, are the average of of, uh, other models, average of the European, the GFS, the UK met uh, various other models. And now these days, we have these sort of intelligent consensus models that don't just do a straight average. They have a Uh, strategic average to figure out how to best average. And one of those is the HCCA, which you uh, mention quite often in the forecast uh, discussions. And that's part of the hurricane forecast improvement uh, project, came out of the hurricane forecast improvement project. And we can't see that in the public yet. So uh, can you talk about what that is? Is that really working out uh, as well as it Seems you know is a really a good model, and is it going to become operational so it kind of ends up in the public like the other consensus models and and uh, other models in general?
1: Yeah, the, you know HICa stands for H corrected consensus, so that's what those sort of smart consensus aids are. Is they what they do is they look at the performance of the models from the previous years and what biases they might have. Do they tend to be say too fast or too slow or too far left or too far right? and then they weight them accordingly. So they might weight the European differently than the GFS, differently than the UK Met, depending on the forecast situation and how the models perform this year. So it's, it's um, in some cases, they do better than the just sort of straight average consensus. In other years, they don't do as well. And, and you know, they struggle too, because the models change every year. So the biases that a model had in the past might not actually represent what the biases or the uncertainties are this year and uh and so you know this year for example the Florida State super ensemble and and went which is another corrected consensus approach and the hica both did pretty well uh the actual multi model consensus actually beat both of them at day 5 though by just a little bit the straight average so but we tend to follow that guidance and um you know, we we don't uh, we can't post everything we use publicly because of agreements we have with companies and things that have they've, they've, uh, helped devise these techniques. So we have some restrictions on what we're able to share, but we, we're able to look at quite a lot of things internally, that we can't always share publicly. And, and they are tend tend to be some of our better uh, uh, you know forecast tools, both for track and intensity, uh, in most years.
0: Yeah, that's the the kind of public private aspect of of improving uh, weather forecasts that's going on really across the the weather enterprise i guess it's, yeah. it's a, an outcome of that an unfortunate outcome of that in a way D- do they do you know uh, uh, look at the errors in the past models in different parts of the ocean like in the deep tropics or uh, you know recurving up the east coast or in the gulf and and use different corrections do you, do you happen to know that
1: um, I don't know, for example, I don't know if what the Super Ensemble does. They may do some sort of regional verification. Um, I know that for the corrected consensus techniques look at the performance of each model at each forecast time, and we'll weight them differently, say, at 24 hours than they might weight them at 72 hours. I don't know if that's broken down regionally or not. I know it's broken down by ocean basin. For example, the errors are very different in the Atlantic than they are, say, in the eastern Pacific. So that's definitely done differently. We do look at our own errors and our own regional verification at times, and and some of that goes into the errors we use for the uh, storm surge modeling, because those We run that model in the western half of the basin, uh, so we tend to look at the errors we make over there rather than farther east. Uh, But, again, yeah, we haven't looked at the regional verification ourselves in terms of the models uh, as much as, you know, know, maybe we did in the past.
0: I I asked that question because it it just occurred to me while you were describing the HICA and how that works is that back in – 1991, I think it was, it was either late 1990 or early 1991, I had this idea of making a fan, you know, uh, which kind of became the quasi-cone that Hurricane Andrew was the first time that was introduced. But uh, I talked to, and I don't remember who it was at the Hurricane Center, but they said, oh, you've got to talk to Charlie Newman. And I went down to visit Charlie Newman at his house. And Charlie Newman, for anybody that knows the Hurricane Center, knows the name Charlie Newman, you you look him up, and he's got uh, hundreds of papers attributed to him and and the early models and so forth and so on. I mean, Charlie was this unbelievable scientist and key to the early years of the uh, Hurricane Center way up into the 80s when he retired, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, he showed me on a computer at his house a fancy computer setup that he had there and he had this whole database of of all these tracks and he showed me these error ellipses and he had calculated different error ellipses for different times in multiple basins in the deep tropics you know the, like if the forecast was for a certain point the average error was actually ahead and to the right and and uh different you know, if it, was, if it had curved up and was near Florida, it was a different amount and so forth and so on. So he gave me all of these different ellipse sizes uh, mm-hmm. to uh, take back and figure out what to do with and I ended up just averaging them all together and coming up with an kind of overall average error for 24, 48, and 72 hours. And that's how I made my lines for that early cone. But, uh, I mean, he was an amazing guy. And way back... Uh, at that time, uh, he was already thinking about the way models were working and forecasts were working, and how different parts of the ocean have uh, different trends. Yeah, yeah,
1: and, and that was back in an era too where the models didn't change as often, so you could gather, you know, sort of two or three years, and you know, maybe even longer, and have a real good feel for the biases that the model particularly might have. But that, that the models tend to change so frequently now, that's that's a little harder to do. Uh, then, then, because the errors from one year might not mean much when the next year comes along, even if the model doesn't change, the characteristics of the storms can be kind of different. Yeah, so. Exactly.
0: So, uh, just uh, before we let you go, uh, Mike, what is coming up at the National Hurricane Center that you know people are going to notice, or maybe with the H uh, HVIP, the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Project?
1: Yeah, we just actually had an HFIT meeting here in Miami earlier this week. Uh, you know, We talked about some of the modeling advances that the research community is working on. We're working on uh, getting the hurricane models uh, upgraded and evaluating the proposed changes that are going to be implemented before next hurricane season. So that's a lot of what we do in the off-season here. We'll be wrapping up our post-analysis of things like uh, you know Dorian, for example, and get the reports out for that. And then, uh, you know, and so there's always new things going on. There's always new data to look at. There's new instruments to look at, new ways of, uh, of looking at and, and sort of digesting all the information we give in operations because we're always getting more in. We've got to figure out more efficient ways to view and look at the data because we don't have any more time to do the forecast than we did right. 10 years ago. Exactly. So, you know, we're in, you know, the rest of the off season, you know, once we get into the new year, we really are focused on the outreach and education and training that we do for emergency managers and the media and working with the rest of the weather enterprise at the conferences and meetings to try to get ready for the next hurricane season which is always just around the
0: corner yes it is it's amazing and they come seems like they come sooner than than ever but i think that's just because we're getting older yeah i think so (laughs) (laughs) all right uh, dr mike brennan thanks very much mike appreciate you being on the podcast thanks brian all right we'll we'll be in touch thanks very much all right, Dr. Michael Brennan, the branch chief of, uh, in charge of the Hurricane Specialist Unit at the National Hurricane Center. All right, we just passed the anniversary of the only hurricane to hit South Florida in November. It was called the Yankee Hurricane, and it was kind of a surprise. It formed near Bermuda. Now, get this in your mind. It formed near Bermuda, which is kind of east of North Carolina, out in the Atlantic, and it headed toward North Carolina at the end of October, and then it turned left, and it headed south. So it's reported to be off Jacksonville. And, I mean, nobody has any idea what's going to happen with this storm. It ended up passing directly over downtown Miami on November fourth, 1935, with an estimated 100-mile-an-hour winds. That's the modern estimate. And remember, in September of that same year, on Labor Day, the all-time megastorm hit the Florida Keys. So this storm in November of thirty-five is kind of forgotten, but it counts as one of the seven hurricanes that passed directly over downtown Miami in the first seven decades of the 20th century. It was called the Yankee Hurricane because it came from the north. As I said, this is the last podcast of the season, except uh, unless something kind of freaky or unusual happens. Thanks to everybody that listened in this season. At today's podcast brought to you by the folks at the Dade County Federal Credit Union, where they care about you and your family. Stay safe and worry-free during hurricane season and prepare your home. If you need funds to help you get started, then apply for a DCFCU signature loan today and get up to $20,000 with rates as low as 6.9% at Dade County Federal Credit Union. Thanks to them for sponsoring us this year. For meteorologist Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. We'll see you again in 2020, if you can imagine that. All right, stay safe. Be well. We'll see you then.